I ask you to turn this morning to John chapter 10. No doubt you can all tell me uh, what I mean by the riches of divine grace. If I were to ask you to come up and share with the church, what does Pastor Dave mean when he says the riches of divine grace? You could all tell me that I mean the things that God has done for you when you first trusted in Christ that you cannot lose. We're talking about those blessings and assets that every believer receives at the very instant of faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And that riches, that set of assets and blessings that cannot be lost, uh, it's an interesting thing. It's not something that you have to attain. You have it. But it's something you need to learn about. We may not know that we're clothed in righteousness unless God tells us. We may not know that that saving faith was the very instant in your life when you received eternal life, when you received the Holy Spirit to live in your heart to abide forever. Maybe this is something that we all, not maybe, it's certainly something we must all be taught. Well, we're talking in this discussion of the riches of grace about the blessings that you received associated with the new birth. We've been doing this for quite a while. We're working through a hit list, a punch list of items that you have or you are because of your faith, your saving faith, God's grace to you when you first believed, and the new birth. And what you get when you're born is alive. You're, you have life. And this new birth, this new life you've been given is God's life, and it's called eternal life. And you have it. And let's, let's pray and go home and have a pretty Sunday, right? You have eternal life. But what is it? We saw a couple of weeks ago that eternal life is defined by the Lord Jesus in John 17, verse 3. As knowing God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Remember John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And we said, that's a very interesting paragraph in which that occurs, that statement of what eternal life is. What is eternal life? It's to know God. Wait, wait, wait. We thought eternal life means to live forever. Eternal life means you go to heaven, learn to play a stringed instrument. Eternal life is, uh, is, you know, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. The old things have passed away. That's eternal life. It's going to heaven. It's, it's bliss. The streets are paved with gold. That's eternal life. Eternal life is going on forever. Eternal life is knowing God. And all those things that happen, that this, that heaven is described as, the new heavens and new earth will be our eternal destiny and the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Yes. All those things, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. All that's true. No more sin nature. But your experience in eternity is more than those things characterized by the knowledge of God, knowing him. And that's why, in part, we can say you have this life now. You have the life. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, he says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. What is this life that enlightens men, that opens our eyes, that 
banishes the darkness and gives us our perspective. The life is knowing God. He brings the revelation of the Father, and therefore he's the word of God. He's revealing the Father. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. One of John's double meanings, words. The light didn't overcome it. The light also didn't receive it or, or, or comprehend it. And the darkness that we live in is in contradiction to the light. And the light is the knowledge of God, and the rejection of God is the darkness, and it is the world system you live in. It is the cultural, more and more the culture infected by the world system of Satan and his fallen angels that you have grown up in, that our children are growing up in. But the light shines in the darkness. The darkness does not overcome it. In 1 John, where will we find that? Skip to the end. You go back to the back of the Bible. You get to your index, and then you go back to you know, for, go, go a little bit forward to Revelation, and then you're in the first, second, third John, Jude, and in there is this little letter of John, the epistle of the same author as the gospel, who in his prologue to the epistle of first John says, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, a name that John has for the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. I believe there's a consistent meaning here, is a relational knowledge of God, knowing him in a personal rapport with him, is the life. And Jesus is the manifestation of that life, and he reveals it, therefore, to us. What we've seen and heard and proclaimed to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ. The theme of 1 John is that the believers he's writing to will enjoy fellowship with God. Not a test of whether, a series of tests of whether you have the life, but whether you're living it. Not whether you are born again, but whether you're having fellowship with God. These things we write to you so that our joy may be made complete, because the apostles, the elder John, toward the end of his life, is looking for the great joy of John of Third John, that his children walk in the truth. They have life. They enjoy the life. The summary of my message today is that because God loves you, he's given you his life. And the thing that you need is life. The thing you're made for is life, eternal life, to know God eternally, to walk with him in his ways, according to his character, not according to our feelings, but according to his person. And we know this from his revelation and we make the, the adjustment. God doesn't adjust his revelation to us. We make our, ourselves adjusted to him, but this is eternal life. And God gave you this life and he wants you to live it because he loves you. And such a message of God gave you life because he loves you. Of course, I'm going to show you a bar graph. It's time to inject a little mathematics into this discussion. More than 540 verses, I think 543 or 550 verses are on display in this bar graph. And, uh, and this is a composite of all the places where the words life and to live, the verb and the noun, and um, love and to love, agapao and agape, zao and zoe, the words for life and love, just two words. There's other words for life. There's other words for love, but I picked those two. 
where these occur in the New Testament. Either one, it's the verse either has life or love. And the reason I, that's a, not a very, that's not a very uh, scientific thing to do is just grab what verses that just have those two words in them. The reason I did it is because if you do the chart on love, agape, or agapao, the verb to love or the noun together, or you do the verb on life, zao or zoe, you end up with almost the same looking chart. Because these two themes are specifically the topic together of one specific gospel or New Testament writer. So who's the fourth one? That'd be the Apostle John. And who's the one that's the next most? First John. You see why I'm showing you the chart? Because John isn't just the apostle of love. This chart looks the same when you do love, agape, but it also does it with life with Zoe. When you put them together and you say, how many times did Paul use it? Now, John only wrote three epistles, a gospel, and the book of Revelation, four of the writings of the Bible, four of the book, five of the books of the Bible, John wrote those. The last five, uh, sorry, the last four were by John and the the gospel of John. Um, Well, except for Jude, Jude is not uh, one of but he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation and the Gospel of John. If you did the similar thing with, okay, how many chapters or verses is that? And you did that with Paul and you would come down to three or four of his letters. Three or four books would be composed, co- compiled together because of all of Paul's letters. But the Gospel of John is really long. If you, if you did a, a similar structure with Paul, you might get a similar thing. But I'm just showing you that in the standalone works of the New Testament, the Gospel of John talks about love and life as a major theme, probably more than any other book of the Bible. And 1 John is like it. 1 John's short. The Gospel of John is long. And those two themes really do helpfully go together. How do I know God has loved me? He's given me his life. It says the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, which if you'll pardon me, I'll read it as best I can in Greek because you probably haven't heard it read in Greek. Hutos gar agapesin hotheos ton cosmon hoste ton huion autu ton monogene edokin hinapas hapistuon es auton me apoletai al eke zoen ionion. Which you all know says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Taken a clause at a time, it says hutos, thus, for explanatory of what he did in verses 14 and 15, the Son of Man must be lifted up, he draw him into himself. He says, for thus, hutos with the, um, the hosta, these two particles go together, hutos and hosta, and they either mean how much he did it, or in this way. So I've translated it thus with a colon. He loved the world this way. That's what, I'm, that's what I believe these particles are indicating. And it may be a double meaning for John again. For thus God loved the world. How did you love me? Is kind of the Malachi response. How has he loved us? This is how he's loved us. His only begotten son is fronted in the clause. Tan Huion, the son of his, the monogenes, the only begotten. 
So we translate it, his only begotten son, the way the adjectives modify the noun. Adjective only begotten modifies the noun. But the verb is to the end. What's fronted is important in the clause. When he says his only begotten son, it draws your attention. Usually in Greek, we do not expect the verb to go after the, the subject. We usually expect it to precede. It's the norm. It's the typical expectation. It's a verb subject object language. English is a subject verb object language. What I'm saying is that John has emphasized the son, the only begotten one. He's emphasized the person and drawn our attention to him. For thus God loved the world, his only begotten son he gave. And yes, it is his giving and it is in the aorist tense indicating the summary of the fact that he gave his son. This truth is yours the moment you first trust in Jesus Christ, and it's yours every moment of your life from now on. And when I say from now on, I mean into the eternity of the eternities. It is always true that God has shown me his love and that he gave me his son. His only begotten son he gave. And then you have two Hannah clauses. Well, you have one Hina clause with two pieces to it. Hina is this little particle right here. Everybody see my little, my little laser beam? That says H-I-N-A, and you see I-V-A. You see the I-V-A up there? The V is an N. That's how you write N in Greek. I have an incremental goal of eventually teaching you Greek. The upside-down N, it's, really, it's a V, but it's really an N. That's the new, the way you write the letter N in Greek. And I'm sorry that we flipped it up and cut it in half to make an, or doubled it to make an N in English, but it is what it is. That's the letter N. And so now you can see the I, Yoda, new, alpha. Everybody's familiar with the A letter, correct? Yes. Okay. So we all see the A. So I-N-A, and I told you that says H-I-N-A because I'm going to teach you one more thing about Greek. That little mark right here, the first little apostrophe, not the second one. It looks like a, it looks like um, a squirt can or something. It looks like a, it looks like a, a raindrop or something flipping off there. This thing over here, the the one on the right, is an accent because the accent goes to the front of the word. But this right here, this thing on the left, that looks like a um, looks like that, an apo- like an apostrophe or not an apostrophe, a single quote. See it? That's the rough breathing in Greek, and it's the letter H. They don't have a letter H. They've got a mark that tells you we say huh there. So if you want to read Greek and you want to say, when do they say huh? They do it by this rough breathing over a vowel in the first, when the vowel is to the front of the word. So hina, that's the, let, that's the word hina. Well, that's really great, Pastor. Up here is the important post-positive conjunction yap. <laughs> Everybody see the yap? Y-A-P, well, unfortunately for us, this Y is a G, that's a gamma. Everybody see the A? Okay, we see the A, all right, and then the P. That's the row, that's the letter R. You all learned math. The letter P, 3.14, it's a a flat with two two sticks. That's, That's the letter P in Greek. But this is the letter R. Why did we change it? Why did we mess it up? Because English came later. I don't know, the English teacher, mothers taught their English children. But, but that's the word gar, G-A-R. It's not a fish, it's a, it's a conjunction. And what it does is it tells you that what we said before is now being reinforced by what I'm about to say. It's a connection between verses 14 and 15 and verse 16. All right, so, so what's this word right here? 
Come on, you got this. Hina. You see the I, you see the N and the A, and there's that rough breathing. Huh. You can do this. You're like, well, that, I know why you, don't, why you don't want to do this. Because you're like, there's 50 other things that we'd have to learn to even know the alphabet, and so it's not worth it. Let me tell you the truth of this. There are 12 other things you have to learn, and then you're done. Because you already know what the A looks like, and the B, and the D, and the E, and the O, and the W is an omega, so you just have to learn that's the long O. You're almost there. But anyway, let's move on. This little conjunction tells you that there's a purpose in what he's saying. There's a purpose from the previous clause to the next clause. Now, now don't, don't blank out on me. This is your eternal life. The only reason I study grammar, the only reason I study grammar is because it's the word of God. And the way you understand the word of God is how it's written. That's the only reason to study grammar for me. And I love it, but I've come to love it because of what it does for me. The clause that he gave his only begotten son is the, the statement that shows us that he loves us. But the reason why he gave his son is in what follows. The reason for the giving of the son is not to satisfy his desire to just get rid of uh, sin and, and satiate his wrath. The reason that God gave his only begotten son in John 3.16 involves the satisfaction of his wrath, but it's so that you could have life because he says, so that everyone, pos, everyone, the word pos is a very common adjective, and it means all when it's plural and every when it's singular. And when it says a pronoun like this, everyone, everyone in the singular, it means every, everybody, everyone. And then you get a, who believes, a, a relative uh, pronoun. Uh, not a, not a, not, it's, it's translated with a relative. It's a participle for pistuo, all who believe or everyone who believes, and it's in the singular. So everyone who believes in him, ace auton, usually we translate ace as into, into him. Most of the time John says believe in him. It's ace, not in, which means uh, the same thing. Believing in him. He's the object of your faith. Everyone who believes in him will not apoletai, perish, in the sense of being separated from God from eternity. You are going to die physically unless Jesus comes back for the church in your lifetime and you are those who are alive and remain who will be caught up together in the clouds. Most of us, if not all of us, will be the dead in Christ when Jesus comes for the church. Probably. Historically, all Christians who have died are that since the day of Pentecost in AD 33. But this word doesn't mean physical death here. He's saying you will not be separated from God for eternity. You can't be. Because of what? Because you are everyone who believes in him. You will not perish. And the other purpose, this, this verb in its form tells me the purpose. The other purpose is to have. But rather, he will have eternal life. Now, you know this. You've memorized this. Now, I've tried to show it to you in technicolor. But the reason that God sent his son is so that you will not perish and so that you would also, on the other hand, have eternal life. Now, some have translated uh, this everlasting life. That won't get it in the Greek. It doesn't work for the original. It was translated everlasting because some theologian apparently said, God's life doesn't have a beginning, but our new life in Christ doesn't have an ending. But we did have a beginning, and we did, and you were not eternally preexistent. You weren't in some soul bank in heaven or some other science fiction thing. God created you when he created you. And here's the thing about that. 
Your life doesn't have an end, but it's not just life that doesn't have an end. It's eternal life. And that is an adjective that describes the quality of this life. What is eternal life? Same gospel, same book, same writer. Few chapters later, this is life. This is eternal life, that they will know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It is the, the, the uh, eternal relationship that you have with God, which is described as knowing him. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but he will have eternal life. We believe it. We keep on believing it. We're good there, Pastor. We believe it. Well, let's test it. Let's pop quiz ourselves. How do I know God loves me today? I woke up in a bad mood. This body's dying a little more every day. Why? Why? How do I know God loves me? So-and-so is upset with me. My relationships, I prayed about it. He didn't fix it. Still bad, whatever the problem is. I have to go to see that fool at work, and I don't want to see the fool at work. I'm supposed to love him. We've got the hardships in life. How do I know God loves me? Well, the way most people think about what they know of God is what they experience. My life has taught me. X, Y, or Z about God. But the word of God tells you that God has demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And beloved, that's not a feeling, that's a thought. And some of you aren't really uh, familiar with thinking very much. And I mean, you don't like to. It's not something you choose to do. It's not something that you get up and think to do. If you're like, no, we do. Well, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to you, those, those of you that don't. I'm talking about people that think Christianity or the spiritual life or anything of consequence should be a passive endeavor that I just sit there and it just happens for me. Christianity is not passive. It's, it's engaged. It's volitional. It's propositional. You have to think. There are people that will tell you, no, just feel along. You know, you just, if, if you're a real believer, then you really feel the joy of the Spirit or something. They'll, they'll try that on you and maybe... If the music's emotional enough, you could get whooped into a frenzy every once in a while into feeling something like what they're describing, but that's not the Bible. You have to be told, I have to be told and refreshed and think through and, and meditate on the fact that God has shown me his love and that he sent me his son. And I need to be honest with myself when that thought creeps in that says, is that good enough? What has he done for me lately? And to the extent that we're honest with ourselves and we have those feelings or those thoughts that creep in, that is, is that it? Is that all? We have misunderstood that he gave me his only begotten son so that if I believe in him, I could have eternal life, which is to never perish, never be separated from God. There is no greater thing God ever could do for you than what he's already done for you at the cross. And that's why we who preach the gospel, will be so excited to consistently preach the gospel. There's no greater news. It's called the good news for a reason. One thing that helps us understand what good news it is when we see what sinners we are, helps me appreciate. For God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, I was separated from God and Jesus died for me. What does God think about sinners? He sends his son to die for them. What am I supposed to think about Sinners. Well, they're, I don't, they're, they're an annoyance. I'm saved. Those sinners, right? Jesus sent his son, God sent his son, Jesus, to die for them. 
And that's the way to think about it. And if you're having trouble with people, you need to ask God to help you think the way he thinks about the people you're having trouble with. The thing that offends you is not less offensive to God. Your righteousness isn't greater so that when you see the difference, you're offended more than God is, right? If I was God, you know, like God isn't less offended, but he's more gracious and loving and long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but all would come to repentance, for example, in 2 Peter 3. And, uh, and he's the one that sent Jonah to the Ninevites and said, preach so that they'll repent. Jonah said, you don't understand. These are Assyrians. I'm not going to preach anything that'll help those people. He's the God who is portrayed by the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 15 as the shepherd that goes after all the sheep to find the one. He's portrayed as the, as the, the wife that has lost her, her dowry coin and she searches the whole house to find the one coin that apparently has fallen off her dowry uh, headdress jewelry thing that would be her, her family's uh, inheritance. And so she goes and finds that one coin and, and rejoices over the, the finding of the one lost coin uh, and, and portrays as the father that's longing for his son to come home when his son has gone to a far country and forgotten who he is and squandered his inheritance and eating a pig slop. He's the dad that's waiting for his son to come home and he sees him coming from a long way off. And as soon as his son comes and says, I've sinned, he throws the cloak around him and puts a signet ring on his finger. They slaughter the fatted calf because he's rejoicing that his son has come home. And he says, we must rejoice for your son, your, your brother was dead, but now he's alive. He's the God of compassion and love, and you need God, and I need God to work in me to think about those annoying sinners that bother me. I need to think about them like God does. And that doesn't mean that their sin isn't sin or that their problems aren't problems. It means that I become more like my Father in patience and long-suffering and forgiveness and compassion. To preach John 3.16 is to marvel at the gift God's given me. And to apply John 3.16 as one who's already trusted in Christ is to be grateful to God for this eternal life that I have through his son. And it's also to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, the only source of that life. And it's also to call out the compassion that I need to have on people that are perishing, that don't have the life. If you let your Bible kind of do a little bit of a page turn over to John chapter 10. If you were in John 3, or if you're in John 1, now we're in John 10. And Jesus gives this extended metaphor that he changes between verse 1 and verse 10 of John 10, or 1 and 11. 1 through 10, he's the true door, and 11 and following, he's the good shepherd. But this is Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, according to Peter. Peter calls him the great shepherd and overseer of our souls, 1 Peter 2, 25. He tells you that he is the door to the sheep, and he's the only door. Just reading through, truly, truly, he says, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, is a thief and a robber. Remember that guy that said God doesn't repeat himself? He's a thief and a robber. That's the same guy. <laughs> a thief and a robber. He always repeats himself. What does a robber do? He steals. What does a thief do? He steals. They're the same person. Anyway, he's a, he's a criminal. 
Now, listen to the illustration. It's a sheepfold. It's where you keep the, the little woolies. You're a farmer. You've got sheep. You have to get a wool crop. That's the purpose of having sheep. So you are careful and you do all the things you have to do so we can shear the sheep and get wool and get some return on the investment of land and food and, and labor and all that went into its business as agriculture. All right. So these people are very aware and familiar with the agricultural thing. They're familiar with sheep. And it makes me think when I read about these kinds of stories, it makes me think of Iraq when I was over there when we would drive 45 miles, it would take three hours on these broken dirt roads through all these uh, agricultural uh, villages. There would always be waiting for the sheep. There would always be flocks and little 13-year-old boys with dowel rods smacking the back of a sheep and keeping it in line. And not hard, just, just making it go the way it wanted to go. And there would always be either between five and 50 sheep in this flock. And I would pass 20 flocks of, she- of sheep with these teenagers that probably couldn't read uh, keeping their sheep. It's, these people knew. That's just Iraq today. This is, these people knew very well about sheep. And here's the thing about sheep. There's a place you keep them, and it's safe. It's got boundaries, like a rock wall or a rock fence like they used to build here, and they're everywhere. You know, even the woods, there's rock fences everywhere. Or a wooden fence or some way you, you make the sheepfold. And the shepherd is going to have one entrance point to that sheepfold, and if somebody, y'all who keep chickens know what this is talking about, that somebody comes in that's not through the main door, that's a hawk that's sneaking in to kill your chickens. Or that's a raccoon that's sneaking in to kill your chickens. Or it's some, one of the other thousands of things that God has given us to kill our chickens that are, that are hunting the chickens all the time. There's something that is on the outside trying to get in, and the sheep are needing to be protected. That's the nature of this illustration he's making, is there's a right way into this door, and anybody that doesn't come in the right way, you don't listen to them, like the scribes and Pharisees, like the people that are rejecting Jesus among the leadership when Jesus is teaching. He's telling the, the disciples, the masses that are listening to him as his students, that you cannot listen to teachers that differ with me. And he's insisting that he is the channel of revelation from God the Father to them. And so if they want to be in the sheepfold, they need to be his flock through his door. And if anyone sneaks in from another way and says, but we've got this or that, they're a thief and a robber. So he's identifying the the error and the cause of the error. That's the summary of the, the illustration. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. So his disciples like Peter and Matthew... These men would be, Andrew, Peter's brother, these men would be, or John who's writing it, they, they would be the good shepherds or the shepherds that are actual shepherds, not thieves and robbers. The ones that are working to take care of the flock would be the ones that come through that door. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice, that shepherd, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I have no experience with sheep except in a Humvee walk, driving past them at something like 15 miles an hour through bumpy roads in Iraq. I have no experience uh, to speak of with sheep. Lamb chops, love them, they're fantastic, whatever. But, um, but I really have no experience with the agricultural side or, or raising sheep. But I'm told that sheep are an interesting animal in that they can't smell water. They're one of the only animals that can't find their own water, so they have to have a human help them or a, a dog that a human is trained to go show them the water. They have to, um, they, they, they're very um, easily led. One gets going in one direction and they all kind of follow. 
And they know who they're, the person that feeds them is. They're made so that when they hear the person's voice that calls them, that regularly feeds them, they know to come to that person. And apparently, if you and I go to visit and call the sheep, they won't come. They'll only come for the person that feeds them, for their regular shepherd. And that's what he keeps referring to when he says that the sheep hear their voice, hear the, the, the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Again, the challenge to the hearers in John 10, are you his sheep? Are you my sheep? Are you my father's flock? Are you hearing from his shepherd, from his shepherds? Are you in his sheepfold? Because if you're following people that are not, the actual shepherd, then you're being led astray. So are you listening to the wrong voice or are you hearing that voice? It's very interesting. See, the answer keeps coming back. What protects us is our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, says John, but they did not understand what those things were which he'd been saying to them. They don't get it, that he's challenging them about who is their shepherd, who is their, to whom do they belong, and do they get it that they're part of the fold, depending on if they're listening to the voice of himself, the great shepherd? So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am, ego me, the door of the sheep. He started off with, if you go through the, the, the side of the fence, if you don't go through the front door, you're a thief and a robber. And he says, I'm the door. And this puts it all into perspective. This chiropractically adjusts our souls, doesn't it? Now we see that there is only one way into this sheepfold and it is only the Lord Jesus Christ. And anybody that tries to get into the fence, another way is, uh, is a raptor, is a thief, is a, is, a, is a predator trying to hurt the sheep, a wolf or a lion or something. Verse eight, all those who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. All those who, all those false teachers in John, Matthew chapter 7, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. Do you know what that's talking about? People think that means you'll know a sinner or an unbeliever by how he behaves. But in Matthew chapter 7, he's not talking about whether someone's sinning and therefore demonstrating his faith. In Matthew 7, Jesus is talking about false prophets and the prophecy or false teachers. And the, and the, the fruit of a teacher is his teaching. And you'll know the false teacher because it doesn't line up with what I'm telling you. And it's the same idea here. These people that haven't gone through the door of the sheep, they're thieves. They're the ones to be rejected because they're not coming in the name of the only begotten Son of God who's coming in the name of God the Father. So it's, it's, it's branding. It's John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to still, steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. In verse 10, you have one of our favorite verses about eternal life, that Jesus came to give them life and that they would have it abundantly. So in the Greek, it reads like this. I won't read this one to you because it's, you know, it's not as famous to us as John 3.16. I wanted you to hear John 3.16 in Greek. But here he says, the thief, the kleptes, K-L-E-P-T-E-S. Does that sound familiar, kleptes? What is that klept? Kleptomania we have today, somebody that can't stop stealing because the Greek word for stealing is klepto, and so it's a stealing maniac. So I just find to, to see where words come from. The, the thief does not come except 
Now, the Greek says the thief does not come except. The English, in my translation, says the thief comes only. But I just wanted you to hear the Greek idiom. The thief does not come to borrow a cup of sugar. The thief does not come to tell you some interesting ideas that might be helpful for you if you think about it. The thief doesn't come for the reasons the thief says he comes. Grandma, what large teeth you have, right? The thief doesn't come for any reason, he says, the Greek idiom says, except to steal. To klepse. I got to bring it out. Klepse. This is one of the coolest letters in Greek. The C. It looks like a Poseidon's trident. That's a Navy thing. So that trident, that's a PS. That's PS. That's why psychology is often abbreviated with that symbol. All right. So klepse is the form this verb is in, a klepto. And to slaughter. He comes to steal and to slaughter. It could mean to sacrifice animals, and, uh, to kill animals for food, or to, by figure of speech, murder in a, in a gory description. Slaughter and to destroy. The same word we had before, he will not perish. I came, he switches the tense from the thief comes to I came, or you could translate have come, but that'd be perfective. It's aorist. I came. And then, uh oh. If you're listening, I am tying these things together. What's that word right there? Hina. How do you know it sounds like it's got an H sound at the front? Because that little posture thing, a little mark, is the rough breathing in Greek over a vowel when it begins a sentence and it says, huh. So it's not ina, it's hina. And how do you know that that V makes an N sound? Because it's a Greek new and you just learned that. And you can be taught hina, right? Hina is explaining purpose, the reason why he came. There was an intention in his coming right here. I came up here, right up here. I came so that they would or might have life. The word is echo to have. It's third plural that they would have zoe. I came that life they would have. And they would have it abundantly. I came that life you would have and that you would have it abundantly. Echo sin twice. Echo sin in the, in the subjunctive indicating the purpose for which he came. I came so that you might have life and you might have life abundantly. What he says in John 10.10 is the same thought as John 3.16, as we just saw. It's the same thought. The Father gave the Son in order that everyone who believes in him would not perish, but everyone who believes in him would have eternal life. Now he says it again. I came so that you would have life. And then he says it as an adverb, and that you would have life perison, abundantly. The verb perisuo to to expand or increase or abound. This is an ad, an adverb describing the having. You would have a great deal of life, quality, eternal life is not so much the continual perpetual existence of the believer in God's presence. It is that, but you know everybody lives forever. There's a resurrection to death, and the second death is an eternal separation from God, an eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. 
That is the second death, and it is perpetual. So continued existence forever is actually not what we mean by eternal life. We mean continued existence forever in the presence of God, knowing him. And that's what you have. And you have it now. And I want to challenge you. Do you have it now? Do you have the life right now? I mean, I I do. I believed in Christ as my Savior. Are you enjoying it? Are you living it? Are you walking in this life? This life has purpose indicated by mission that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, gave us when he said, go make disciples of all nations. Do you get that you have a purpose and a mission? This life has equipment to go about this mission. I know I'm pleasing to Jesus and he loves me and he knows that I love him if I keep his commandments. And I know in John 14, 21, 23, if I keep his commandments, then he and his father make their abode in me. I'm enjoying fellowship with God. And I know conversely, if I'm not, I'm not. So it's got a purpose. It's got a context. I'm abiding in Christ. It has the power of this life. The spirit of God lives in you to make you an adequate, sufficient, successful witness. So then the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll do greater works, Jesus says, than these. You will move mountains, he says. How so? Because as you go and do the work that God is doing through you about saving the everyone who believes, about being part of God's saving work by communicating Jesus Christ and that saving gospel message of sharing in your life as Christians with other Christians and encouraging them, teaching them to keep all that Jesus has commanded. Inasmuch as you're in their life and you have a word of truth, if you have an encouragement, something to share, the role that you have in this life is a magnificent role. It's a magnificent role, but it is a whole lifestyle. And you do it in your work. You do it in your play. You do it in your life. You do it when you're in leisure. You do it when you're resting because you have a mission, because God is clear. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, you've given us life, and the challenge is that we live it. Something in our hearts tends to shy away when we reduce the Christian life down to the mission you've given us and the power of your spirit to do the mission. But it shouldn't be this way, Father. We should uh, embrace, we should open our eyes and fully embrace the riches of your grace that you've called us to, including the work. Thank you so much for the privilege of this life, the privilege to be about your work, the privilege of making disciples. Thank you so much for the privilege of talking to you in the name of your son. And Father, we do pray right now for anyone who's in the hearing of our voice, in our lives, friends, family, coworkers, employers, employees, the paper boy, whoever we encounter, Father, those that you have in our lives, we pray for their salvation. We ask that they would come to know Jesus Christ in the gospel, that he died for their sins and rose from the dead. And in knowing Christ, they would know you and therefore have eternal life. We know it's your desire for them that not any should perish, but that all will come to repentance. So we pray for the gospel to go forward and be glorious. Father, we also pray as Paul did that in this mission you've given us, you protect us, you go before us, protect us from our own folly, protect us from presumption, protect us from false teaching, protect us from uh, the, the culture around us and all the distractions protect us from that embracing the darkness that so easily characterizes us and teach us what it means to love you, to walk with you. Save our loved ones that they could trust in Christ as their Savior for there is no other way and help us rejoice every day in our so great salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.